familiar, catchy theme song, which means you have uh, stumbled right into the steam room, a podcast which gained 83 billion more subscribers last week. Is that amazing, Chuck? Hey, I want to thank everybody for subscribing, making us the number one podcast in the entire world. (laughs) Not just the United States, the whole world. Yeah, lots of loyal steamers uh, all over the universe. Thank you, folks, for being here. Tractor Supply Company is our sponsor, and we appreciate them. And um, we start every podcast, and this is episode number 28, uh, with Chuck's favorite phrase, which is, first of all, First of all, you know you have a lot of money when you get hunting nut Cheerios. I've had the regular Cheerios. First of all, you know anybody ride a motorcycle who makes millions of dollars is an idiot. First of all, zero plus zero is zero. Ernie, I'm going to be all over the place today. I'm not going to lie. I just want to say I'm going to talk about me and you individually and the show winning an Emmy. And I just want to take the time to thank every single person who works on the show. You know, obviously, Ernie is the lead dog to make our show go. Uh, I'm blessed to work with Ernie, Kenny, and Shaq, but there's so many people behind the scenes. I mean, everybody know TK, Fiorello, Jeremy, Underdog, Anthony. I mean, uh, Audio Rob. I mean, everybody. Alex. Uh, I uh, I just want to acknowledge you guys and just say thank you. This doesn't work if anybody makes the show about themselves and nobody's ever done that. And I think that's, you know, we make the show about everybody who's involved in it and and everybody feels like they're playing a role. And so when we win an Emmy for the best studio show in one of those categories, everybody wears that badge proudly. And I'm not going to lie. This was actually the first time that I really wanted to win. So I could say thank you to everybody because Man, this pandemic has got our worlds so screwed up and crazy. You know, uh, you know, just like normally we have over a hundred people in the studio, and now we got like twelve. And so the reason I really wanted to win is to acknowledge those hundreds of people who are normally there, who I haven't seen, not sure when I'm gonna see them again, but I wanted to get a chance to just say thank you. Hasn't it been good to get back in there, you know, at the world's longest desk with the plexiglass and everything else? I mean, <laughs> Zoom is one thing. And, and yeah. you know, when we were struggling to do anything at all. It was, oh, good. We're having a Zoom. Look, we can see each other. But I'm telling you, doing those shows in person where we're all there. I mean, it's so that's what that's what makes it so special. You know, Ernie, I'm having fun being back in the studio. But, man, it is really weird. Uh, only seeing like only three people in a room. Yeah. I mean, like people at home don't know. I mean, it's like when we finish the pregame show, it's like, it's, it's like a boxing ring. Everybody goes to their corner. You know, it's like I go in my office, you go in your place, Jack, Kenny, and then boom, two minutes before halftime, we're, we're back out there. But like I say, man, I, I want to be serious to start the podcast today and just tell everybody, thank you. For me and Ernie and the show winning, thank you for your hard work. And uh, I, and I, you know, I've said this a couple times. I want to give a shout out to Gary Bettman and Adam Silver. I'm not gonna lie, y'all. I thought this bubble thing had zero chance, zero chance. 
I thought this bubble thing had zero chance of working. But Adam Silver and Gary Bedman, I think I saw a stat that both the NHL and the NBA are like almost a thousand tests and they all been negative. So I just want to acknowledge what they're doing in hockey. Cause I know, listen, I think nobody got any idea how much work goes into this bubble thing. I mean, I don't think a normal me and Ernie in the business, and I think we got no idea how much time and energy. And we did a thing on the show the other night about the barbers. I mean, you know, they've made this thing, the players, and I want to give the players credit. I mean, we've had a couple little hiccups here and there. But, man, in the NHL and the NBA, I want to give my best to the players for sticking to the protocols. I mean, and, man, I, I hope we are both able to finish this thing. But where we are today, I did not think we were going to be a month in and not have an outbreak. So I want to acknowledge that. No, I mean, Chuckster, we had had the conversation on this uh, on this very podcast about that same thing. And we had Kenny on that time. We were talking about, do you think this is going to work? And I and I had my doubts, too. I didn't say it had zero chance. I just said, I just don't see how you go from start to finish without some kind of a roadblock in there that's going to, you know. And, and again, to Adam Silver's credit, when he is asked about it now, he said, you know, it's like so far so good. We still have a, a ways to go. Um, but I would say right now, I was thinking I was I was driving into work the other day, you know, Sports Illustrated always does a sports person of the year on the cover. I think that's got to be Adam Silver. I think no question for the the lead for the lead. The NBA took in saying, number one, we're suspending play. You know, we had somebody test positive. This is serious stuff we need. And and then everybody else followed suit. And then for, for this, this bubble concept has been brilliant. And and that's coming that's coming from a guy who like you kind of said, man, I don't uh, I don't know. You're going down to this hot spot in Florida. I don't know if you you know. And man, it's been it's been impressive to see. So yes, uh, so I'm with you. Uh, anything else on on first of all, you said you had a few roads to go down. Oh no, that that, that was mainly it. Uh, I, I like I said, I just wanted to acknowledge the crew, and I you know what I want to acknowledge the Phoenix Suns too. I'm glad you said a couple more things. Devin Booker became a full-blown star. Money Williams did a fantastic job. You know, because I, I told people, I said, I don't know if you got nothing to play for. There's no fans in the stands. I thought coaching and leadership was going to be really important in the bubble because you got to self-motivate. And what the Phoenix Suns did for self-motivation and what Devin Booker did for self motivation, I got to get, I got to acknowledge those guys. We'll talk uh, some more NBA as the steam room continues. Got a special guest on the way, um, who for the first time in his career is not in the playoffs. Oh, that's a hint about who's coming up next. See if you can uh, figure it out. We'll be back. We welcome you back to the steam room and um, Chuckster, you are line. Special, special guest. And with all our special, special guests, we uh, we recommend that you keep your towel on as you come into the steam room. And that advice given to JJ Reddick. JJ, how are you? I'm doing good. 
Chuck and Ernie, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's always good to chat with you guys. No, we've got to be on our best here, Chuckster, because we're dealing with a guy who has his own pod. Okay, so he knows how podcasts work. He knows the difference between a good pod and a bad pod. So bring your best game for this, will you, Chuckster? So, you know, JJ, me and Ernie are new to the podcast thing. Now, we got about 28 under our belt here. Well, we're still new to the podcast thing. All right. What's the best what's the best advice you can give us to have a successful podcast? The best advice I could give you would be to prepare, which I know is not Chuck's strong suit. So <laughs> someone's going to probably have to have to do the the show notes for him. Uh no, preparation's huge. I, I really, I, I take, uh, you know, an hour or two uh, right before every episode and throughout the week, as I know we have guests coming on, I'll take notes. Um, I'll read articles. If they've been on a recent podcast, I'll listen to them on there. If there's been a feature recently, I'll watch that. You know, I, I love being able to tell a guest journey, tell a guest story uh, through conversation. And that's that's ultimately the goal. I want every every listener uh, after an episode to be like, oh man, I'm now a fan of such and such person. I want to know, I want to know this, um, after, I don't know exactly how many days you were in the bubble. Um, you probably have it down to hours and minutes, <laughs> but when you got home and, and there was Chelsea and there was Knox and there was Kai, tell me what that moment was like. I got off the plane. They came and picked me up. They, the boys ran across the parking lot. My four-year-old Kai, um, you know, he has this infectious uh, giggle. And the whole run, he's giggling. He grabbed me around my leg. Knox is, is the older one. He's a little bigger and gave me a big bear hug. I eventually got to Chelsea and gave her a hug and a kiss. But being away from them for that long was, was easily the hardest part of, of being in the bubble. There was some normalcy in the bubble in terms of being around your teammates and the camaraderie and the competition. And those are things as an athlete that we all crave, but your escape, your grounding influence, at least in my life, is my family. And I didn't have them there to, to, to ground me and to kind of keep me from the highs and lows that we all face uh, when we're in the middle of competition. You know, we're all kind of in a bubble right now. We're stuck in Atlanta <laughs> for the next couple months. So we, we don't get the luxury of going home hugging anybody. I do. Well, well, Ernie does. Sorry, Ernie. Mr. Yeah. I'm, I'm writing a book about what Ernie, my days with Mr. Selfish. He gets to go home and hug his family every day. It's selfish for me to go to my house after after a night at work. Okay, I got <laughs> you. Yeah. What was the best thing about the bubble and what was the worst thing other than missing your family? Uh, okay, so I take this with a grain of salt because I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. The setup in the bubble was amazing. What the league did, what the uh, union did, to make this thing work is nothing short of amazing. But I'm going to be real. The food was as bad as advertised. Um, <laughs> you know, I got by. So I would I would wake up um, for practice or shoot around, and I would have a banana and two cups of coffee. And that was my breakfast. And then, um, you know, lunch and dinner, I would try to eat at the restaurant at the hotel, which the food was great. Uh, the staff there was so welcoming and so warm. We had a great experience there, but the food that was provided to the team, uh, less than stellar, less than stellar. The best thing, as I mentioned, I, I think it was the socialization aspect. Chuck, you just mentioned that you're sort of in this bubble. 
before we got on the air, you were saying that your production crew at, at, at the studio is normally 200 people. Now it's like 10 people. Uh, I was talking to a friend this morning about that who, uh, who works in, in finance. He hasn't been able to go to the office in five months. And I think for a lot of people during this time, it's the socialization that we missed. It's the camaraderie that you have on, on you know, being a part of a team. And that, to me, was the best part about it. It, it was the part that felt super normal, getting on a bus ride in the morning, talking shit to your teammates, um, you know, playing a game, having a glass of wine and a meal with them afterwards. Those are the things that I, I missed, you know, while we were all getting locked down. And, and, and uh, you know, now that I'm back with my family and, and things aren't still back to normal out here in New York, but, uh, you know, at least I have them to, to, to kind of, you know, hang with and, and do things with. How strange was it, JJ, to to be on that campus? You know, maybe you play against somebody, and we saw it the other day. I think uh, uh, it was posted by Jamal Murray. He, you know, he 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 went on his uh, on his account, and they had just beaten Utah, and he just pans over, and there's Donovan Mitchell after he scores fifty seven, <laughs> just kind of hanging his head. I mean, was it how strange was that vibe to see the guys you just played against, maybe at a restaurant or or just walking around the campus maybe man that guy got me with a bow in the second quarter and there he is standing right there well what was strange particularly with us was we were staying at a hotel with five other teams four of which were competing to get into that eight nine game so at the other hotels you might have you know some eastern conference teams and some western conference teams we were we would see the same guys over and over we're all competing to get into that last spot so it was very weird. Like you'd be walking, I'd be walking by to go get tested and I'd see Damian Lillard coming out of testing and I would be like, good luck tonight. And then I'd be like, why the f did I say that? You know, why, why did I say that? I actually want him to lose, you know, it's, it, but so it was weird. And like, we, we, um, I don't know if y'all saw early in the bubble. Um, I had, I had the shotgun a beer in a, in one of those personal uh, ice tubs. Yeah, saw that. Yeah, so it went viral, and all of a sudden, all the teams were like, "Where'd you guys get those ice tubs?" So, so eventually, all six teams ordered like eight of these ice tubs. So you'd come out in the afternoon after practices or games, and there'd be you know three or four teams out there all tubbing together, and there was a, an underlying tension for sure uh, because we were all competing for the same thing. Hey, I'm gonna go back to your college days. I, I always wanted this because I've got to know Christian Leitner really well, obviously from the Dream Team, and I still keep in contact with him today. How real is the Duke hate? It's real enough that it required me to go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I always, I always say this. When I was a freshman, I turned 18 right before I started my freshman year. My sophomore year, I was 19. So the, specifically in those two years. I grew up wanting to go to Duke. It was my dream to play at Duke. And we have our first ACC road game against Clemson, like nine games into the season. And we come out for warmups and people are screaming all these things at me, not at Duke, at me. And I'm like, what the, where is this coming from? What, what is this? And those first two years, you're emotionally unprepared to deal with that level of animosity directed at you. And there were certainly some arenas where I found humor. You know, there were things like there was a sign once that said, JJ drinks his own pee. I thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> but there were, there were other times where, where things sort of crossed the line, you know, and people would say things about family members, my sisters in particular, one of which was 12 at the time. 
And, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of, you're growing into your own identity during those years. And you also have to deal with this, uh, this hatred and you, you can't, it's hard to sort out by yourself. So actually I, you know, I, I, from sophomore year on through when I graduated, um, I saw a therapist and it was, it was actually really helpful. You know, when I played on the dream team, I was really nervous because, you know, Coach K was a living legend. And when you see, you know, so and I'm like, you know, I'm, I, I've just watched him from a distance. And I get a chance when I get blessed enough to play on the dream team. And I see Coach K, I'm like, I don't know how to relate to this dude. And he was the nicest guy. I mean, he obviously he's a great coach. He was really a nice man. Give me a little bit of insight what it's like to play for Coach K. It's a great question. So I think there's, there's two versions of Coach K. There's the pre-2006 version. I graduated in 2006. And then there's the post-2006 version. Coaching, being the head coach on the Redeem team, uh, you know, they, they play the world championships in 06. They play um, the qualifying games in, in 07. Then they go play and win the Olympics in 08. That experience, I think, changed a little bit how we coached. He wasn't at a 100 all the time. When I was there, he was at a 100 all the time, where every day was really mentally challenging. So you grew a lot as a player and as a person. You know, Coach, coach yelled a lot. He motivated a lot. I'll, I'll share one story about motivation. It's one of my favorite Coach K stories. So my, uh, my junior year, we're getting ready to play Georgia Tech. And we were a little bit undermanned that year. I think we only had seven or eight scholarship players. And it's a big – we were coming off a, 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 an emotional game earlier in the week. So the night before the game, uh, we, we meet in the locker room, and he plays the, the first battle scene from Braveheart. Okay, And if, we, if you've seen the movie Braveheart, all right, you know it's, it's pretty gory and violent. I mean, they're literally chopping people's heads off in this scene. <laughs> and we're all kind of like looking around the locker room and we're like, all right, all right, so we're going to war tomorrow. Okay, I get, we get it. Like, it's, it's going to be intense. And he gives a little speech. It's an afternoon game. We come in the next day and he does his pregame speech. He puts the scene on again and he leaves the room. And we're kind of like, what, what's going on? So now we've got to rewatch the scene. As the scene ends, as William Wallace sticks the sword into the ground, Coach K runs back in the locker room with his army saber, his sword from when he went, went, when he went to West Point. And he's, I hadn't noticed the pot of dirt yet, but there was a pot of dirt underneath the TV and he sticks, he you know, gives out this primal scream and he sticks the sword in the dirt. And we're all like, okay, this guy is on another level. Like he's, he's super <laughs> intense. We, we won the game, um, but just tactics like that. You know, before I got there, I heard stories like that. I think he's always looking for, for an edge uh, mentally. I always say his greatest, his greatest strength as a coach to me is his adaptability. Each era of college basketball, he's adapted. So uh, best college player you play with, best pro player you play with? Best college player I played with? Whew, I would probably say it was Luol Deng. Uh, he was a freshman my sophomore year. We made the Final Four that year. I mean, you could see at that age, he was just super talented, even at 18 as a freshman and had a great NBA career, made a couple all-star games. Best NBA player I've played with. That's tough because I played with prime Dwight. I played with prime CP, prime Blake. Uh, I played with Joel. Um, I've got some young guys now that, you know, are fantastic down in New Orleans. 
Uh, but I would say CP. CP is the best player I've played with. His his control of the game um, is is next level. You know, since you're talking about guys you're playing with today, how crazy is the hype on Zion being around it every day? The the hype's the hype's real. The hype's crazy. I I'm so impressed by how level headed he is. He hasn't allowed the hype to go to his head. He always, you know, when we when him and I talk about it, he's always like. I just want to play basketball. It's what I love doing. It's what I enjoy doing. All the other stuff is just noise. Chuck, I want to ask you, take, take away the dream team, but who, who was the best player you, you played with in your career at the time? Because obviously you played, you played with the dream, but that was later on in his career. Yeah. Who was the best player you played with? Uh, Andrew Toney. Uh, Andrew Toney is the best player I ever played with. Uh, just flat out unguardable. And you know, people always say, well, what about Doc and Moses? I said, well, Moses uh, is the most influential person in my career uh, because he told me I was fat and lazy. Yeah. And he, he changed the entire outlook on my entire life. If I didn't listen to Moses Malone, I wouldn't be to be- become the player I became. Uh, but he made me lose 50 pounds, and the rest is history. But he was on the back end of his career, and same thing with Dr. J. But the best player I played with day out was Andrew Tony, who was amazing. Chuck, I, sorry, Ernie, I don't want to hijack the podcast, but I, I just am naturally very curious about things. Chuck, when you went through that transformation, you lost 50 pounds. Like, how much time did that take? What was, like, your, your regimen? Like, was it just diet? Was it, was it changing your workout routine? How did you accomplish that in a short amount of period of time? Because I think a lot of young players, and I, I played with some guys that, they don't quite understand like the how important just the, taking care of your body. Yeah, it's it's a lifestyle. So I remember going up to Moses one day after practice. I said, Moses, why am I not getting to play? No, actually, that's not true. I went to his condo because we lived in the same building. Uh, he was in a penthouse. Just saying. <laughs> uh, so I suppose can I come up and talk to you tonight? He says, Sure, young fella, come up and talk to me. And so I go up and I suppose why am I not getting to play? And he said, he says, Charles, you're fat and you're lazy. And I'm like, what? He says, you're fat and you're lazy. He says, son, you weigh 293 pounds. You cannot play in the NBA at 290. You can get away with that shit in college, which you did. And he says, Charles, you got a lot of talent, but you got to lose weight. And this guy who was already a Hall of Famer, already won the world uh, championship, met with me every morning. And he didn't say I needed to lose 50 pounds. He says, Let's, so he said, let's lose 10 pounds. So I get to 290. He said, let's get to 280. I get to 280. He said, let's get to 270. Dang, I, said, I get to 270. Let's get to 260. And I'm thinking like, man, I'm getting, I don't know if I'm going to have any strength of any energy, but I felt great. Now this time I'm starting to get to play. And then at this point, I'm starting to start when I get down to 260. And he says, let's get, I got to 250. And I actually got to 240, but I had no strength and no energy. He says, okay, gain 10 more pounds back, and you're going to play at 250. And I'm not going to lie, JJ, when I first started working out, I didn't think it was any way possible for me to lose those 50 pounds. I'm glad you asked me that question because we've talked about it on the show, and I hear everybody talking about it. You know, Zion is probably in the exact same situation I was in. I I don't know – a lot about his body fat and what kind of shape he's in, whatever. But, you know, the best ability is availability. And clearly he's going to have to make some changes in his body because right now he can't stay healthy. 
But I, I, I wonder, and I said this on the show, I said he need a Moses Malone, yeah. a guy who's going to be with him and say, yo, man, we gonna, let's figure out what your optimum playing weight is. Can any of you guys walk up? And I, I'm not saying, I'm not, I want to make this clear. Zion, listen to me. As my girl Judge Judas say, listen to me. Don't hear me. Listen to me. I'm not saying the same situation. But do you guys have anybody on your team who can go up to Zion and say, hey, Zion, you need to lose some weight? My, myself, I think Drew. The thing with Zion is he's such a good kid. Um, I've had conversations with him, you know, early in the season, uh, just about taking care of his body. But clearly, you know, what you went through with Moses uh, is something that, you know, he's got to figure out. And to your point, it's it really is finding that optimum weight. And it can't be what the, tw- the Twitter crowd says is the optimum weight. Uh, I think the results speak for themselves. And part of those results, as you mentioned, and I talk about this all the time, availability is a skill in the NBA. And not just availability like, oh, I'm available and I'm healthy. It's like, no, there's a difference between being hurt and being injured. An injury, you might have to sit out a few games. If yeah. you're hurt, you should be able to play through it. But to be able to play through it hurt, you have to be at the right weight. Yeah. You have to be doing all the little things day to day to take care of yourself. You have to do all the, the prep work and the corrections and the activations. And so, again, I, with, with Zion specifically, like him and I are going to have that conversation. I know, I know Griff has had those conversations with him. I have no, he's such a good kid. He's going to figure it out. And I know he wants to be great. And so he will, he, he'll, he'll figure that out. So your streak of consecutive playoff appearances ends at 13. So honestly, how much of the playoffs are you watching? Um, I go through a phase every time my team is eliminated where the first week I'll just, I'll watch a couple games, but I try to get away a little bit from basketball. Uh, I, I told you guys before, you know, I'm up on Long Island um, with my family right now. And, you know, rather than watch the games last night, we, we took a boat out to um, the North Fork of Long Island and had some, had some lobster rolls right on the water. Um, and then, you know, I kind of, you know, I, I watched the Blazers uh, Lakers game. Uh, I watched a little bit of the heat. Uh, Indiana game the first the first night and I'll watch some tonight but you know I I try to give myself a week or two just to kind of get away from basketball and and then like anybody else who's a an avid NBA fan I'll watch every starting next week I'll watch every game so I know that this is a crazy situation with the bubble do you count this as the end of your playoff streak <laughs> yeah I do I mean would you would I count it if we won a championship yeah we count if I win a championship so <laughs> I gotta count it I gotta take the L on this Chuck I'm taking the L the playoff streak is over <laughs> another bubble question for you uh anybody able to get inked up down there <laughs> you know we had we had a person that did pedicures and manicures at each hotel we had hair braiders uh I think each each hotel had two barbers I got my cut down there twice um they were my guy Mo the barber from Miami uh phenomenal guy Phenomenal barber. Um, you know, again, the NBA and the, and the union, they thought of everything. Um, they did not think of the tattoo artist. There was no one there covering that, uh, that need or, or want, I should say. Is it true that uh, you got tatted up with your grandmother? So, my, yeah, my first, my first tattoo, which is this, 
very small one I have on my chest that eventually I'll get uh, lasered off so I can put something bigger there. I got, I was, I was 19. Uh, I had just finished my, my sophomore year and she had just turned 80 and she, she's the only person in the world who still calls me Jonathan. And so she's like, Jonathan, um, I want to get my first tattoo with you. And so I said, all right, let's go. So we were, we were in North Carolina at the time with my sisters and, uh, we went to the barber or the, to the tattoo parlor. She picked out a butterfly. She got it over her shoulder. She went first and didn't like, didn't budge, didn't bat an eye. Just like it was normal. And obviously if you've had a tattoo, you know that that is the uncomfortable feeling. She, she handled it way better than I did. And actually my, my sleeve I got during a season. So I had four, like four and a half hour sessions. It was 18 hours in total. Um, so I got it done in four sessions, but I was, I did it like starting in December and finished it in March. Um, Gerald Henderson is the only guy during that whole season who um, scratched the shit out of me and messed up a portion of the, uh, the, the tattoo before it healed. But uh, it was, it was fine. My final question for you, what was your favorite restaurant in Philadelphia? Oh, <laughs> great question. Philly has some great, great restaurants. My, so I'll give you three that I really like. So, so Double Knot, which is like a Japanese omakase style uh, restaurant. Vernick, which he's a, uh, uh, Greg Vernick's a, a James Beard award-winning um, chef. And uh, Moheran and Sons, which is an Italian restaurant in Bricktown that opened uh, four or five years ago. But I will say this, I got to give a shout out to the culinary crew with the 76ers. At the new 76ers practice facility, they've got uh, Jay Heat uh, Cho is, is the head chef. They've got three people working for him. I told them this every day. It's a, like our practice facility is a top 10 restaurant in Philadelphia. It, the, what they do for, this, for the Sixers there is just phenomenal. Uh, best food program I've had in the NBA by far. Hey, let me tell you something. When I played for the Seven of Sixers, we practiced at St. Joseph College and the locker room was no bigger than somebody's kitchen. And it was college kids always running around. Last year, I went to the 76ers practice facility. And, J.J., you are 100% correct. They got a full-blown shelf. They got five or six basketball courts. They got one of the great-looking weight rooms. And what the players can hang out at is one of the most amazing things. I was saying to myself, damn, I, like you would want to be a great player with everything they got there. If you could just walk in there and tell the chef what you want to eat. I mean, it was amazing. So uh, shout out to the 76ers and Elton Brand and Brett Brown and those guys. But man, their practice facility is amazing. Chuck, the reason that today's players get to have a facility like that is because of you and your generation of players. I just want to acknowledge that. Like what, what you guys did in the 80s and 90s is the reason that the NBA is as popular as it, as it is today. You guys paved the way for us to, to be able to enjoy the amenities of that. So, so thank you, man. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate the acknowledgement. Thank you. Yeah. JJ, we uh, certainly appreciate having you on, and we would be remiss if we did not mention again that you have your own podcast, The Old Man and the Three. And I don't know what it's like for you, JJ, but I – I think I can speak for Charles in saying that this whole podcast experience has been really cool because it's given us uh, an outlet to talk to folks, go deep in a lot of different ways down different uh, 
down different side streets in our conversations that you normally don't get to do. So it's barely been fun for us. You know, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Uh, and I have to plug the podcast, you know, please go subscribe to the old man and the three listen, wherever you listen to your podcast. We also have a, a YouTube channel, just search JJ Reddick channel. Uh, we put up all the videos, full interviews, plus breakout clips of everything we do. Um, it's, it's been such an enjoyable thing. We just released our, our sixth episode of the old man and three today with Sue bird, uh, from the Seattle storm. Um, and we have, you know, two more episodes coming out next week and in the foreseeable future, we'll be doing weekly episodes. So please, please subscribe and listen. And, uh, thank you again for having me on guys. Anytime brother. Chuck, I'll tell you two things before I get off. So first of all, uh, I told my mother, my mother-in-law and father-in-law are visiting us here. And I told her that I was going on your show today. And uh, she goes, tell Chuck that he's the absolute best. <laughs> so she wanted me to tell you that. But the other thing I wanted to say was, you may not remember this, but I came to visit Philly pre-draft. And Billy King took me to a restaurant. I can't remember what restaurant it was. And you were sitting at the bar having a cheeseburger. Billy comes over, he introduces us. And the first thing out of your mouth is, you're not big enough to play shooting guard in the NBA. You need to switch positions to point guard. And I remember thinking to myself, Chuck was six foot four and played power forward. What is he talking about? <laughs> hey, tell your mother-in-law thanks for the love, man. All right. I did all right for a power forward. You're doing all good for a shooting guard. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, man. <laughs> That's awesome. You heard this guy uh, referenced earlier in the podcast during Chuck's first of all, among those that everybody knows, the legendary longtime producer, uh, like coordinating producer, VP, uh, whatever, Tim Kiley. TK is here. What the hell? What? Wait a minute. Normally you dress like a hobo. You got a suit on today. This is Zenya. Chuck, this is Zenya. Is it really? It's, I, I, of course, it's the only suit I have, but I had to put it on because, Ernie, we're going to be adding to, as you mentioned earlier, to our, uh, our cabinet behind you, another Emmy Award, well-deserved by everybody. And um, if there was ever an example of why this show is deserving of an Emmy Award, it was last night. I got to hear it. You rang. <laughs> you rang. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love, love you, Boban. <laughs> I love you, Boban. Thank you, brother. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you, you so and, much. And, and thank you guys because choose me and not Luca. First time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was tremendous. Ernie, let me t one thing that, that I'm really proud of, how many players and people watch our show. And I was getting so many texts in the middle of that interview, and people say, man, this is the, y'all gotta have this dude. Bill Cower, who's a great friend, is texting me like, this is the greatest thing ever. Y'all gotta have that guy on more often. I mean, Mike Wilbon, who's like my, my older brother, he's texting me, he's like, man, thank y'all for giving me a good laugh. And man, so I love that dude, man, he's the best. But Ernie, switching gears, this will be up your alley too. Um... We've had a rash, Chuck, of unwritten rules being broken. I'm sure you guys have seen the controversy in baseball around Fernando Tatis Jr. He swung at a 3-0 pitch with the bases loaded and his team up 10-3. And, of course, he gets a grand slam. 
next night, up six runs, steals third. And, oh, everybody's upset and uh, mad. Uh, I think a famous coach said, if you, wanna, if you don't want to score, stop us. Well, let me say this. Uh, Eduardo Perez, who's fantastic uh, on, on coverage of baseball, I text him because I can say, I don't want to be one of these jackasses on television who think he knows all the rules of sports. <laughs> you already are. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I listen. I don't. The steal might be a little uncalled for, but if it's three and zero, and you throw a meatball up there right down the middle, got I'm going for it too. Hey, you know what? Uh, doing a game with Ron Darling the other day, and he said the three zero pitch is is the new two zero pitch. It's like everybody's swinging on three zero, and so it's not like this was some you know. Are you going to agree on that side? Hey, look, we're not going to try to score any more runs, so don't swing at a 3-0 pitch. Some of these these unwritten rules just have to have to go by the wayside. And, uh, you know, it's just, look, the kid is 21. He's going to learn some of these things, but don't condemn him for, you know, getting the pitch right down the middle. I just, I don't, when everybody's swinging 3-0, come on. Well, let me say this, Doherty. Yeah. I do not have a problem with them drilling his ass next time. No, just not look. at all. Not okay. at all. That's the that's the unwritten rule of baseball. Yeah, if you're gonna if you do this, I'm gonna I'm gonna low bridge you next time. Yeah. Ernie Chuck, the thing was that they took the pitcher out, put in another pitcher, and had him throw at Manny Machado. Yeah, he threw threw behind him. Yeah, threw behind him. Yeah, well, that's always the way it works. Yeah, I mean, is that do you? Do you guys feel like that's okay? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's always been done in baseball. I prefer if you hit the guy who you're mad at. Yeah, that would that is preferable, but you have to wait a while. But the way it all, it's always been in baseball is somebody gets hit, you hit you hit one of ours, you you lead off the next inning, hang loose, man, because that thing may be coming right at you. So, uh, no, I think. I think there are certain unwritten rules, but I also, look, don't make it easy, you know, play the game, quit whining, quit whining because you, you know, oh man, I can't believe this guy swung with the bases loaded in the 3-0 count and 7 Hey, listen, Come on. if you're baseball, you need all the help you can get from a publicity standpoint because this kid, yeah. he, hit another, he hit another home run last night. He is on fire. I mean, he's just a flat-out stud. And uh, if you're going to get that guy to be the face of baseball for the next 10 to 15 years, you should be proud because he's young, he's terrific, he's exciting. And he doesn't have hey. unwritten rules of baseball. Yeah, he's too young to know the rules. <laughs> hey, Chuck, I got a couple unwritten rules for you guys, all right? Ernie, you first since you're the baseball player. Bat flips. Unwritten rule? Um, no. Nah. Nah, uh, because it, it's it's too common now. I just I just don't think that that's. Uh, I think it's pretty much accepted unless it's like Jose Bautista like uh, a couple of years ago. You know, so um, no bat flips are okay. Chuck basketball. Remember when Ricky Davis shot at his own basket so you get a triple double? Is there any unwritten rules like that in hoops? The team should have suspended him for a game. One of the great men 
who I know in my life is Herm Edwards. He has suspended players when the league didn't. He, he says, my job is to make you a man. I'm not here just to coach football. He has suspended players when the league did not do it. I admire that. He says, hey, I'm not here just to win games. And he says, and he says something interesting. He says, if you let players do stupid stuff, they'll keep doing it. And then other players will do it. If a guy screws up and the league does not suspend him, I'm going to suspend him to send a message to the rest of my team. I thought that was pretty awesome. Last unwritten rule. This one's for you, Chuckster. Never commit crimes with checks. That's not an unwritten rule. That's a damn rule. Do not write a check when you do some some criminality. <laughs> hey, hey, TK, did you ever explain why you're wearing a suit? Yeah, because we won an Emmy. Oh, okay. So, so that's the reason. Okay. Yeah. I, I figured I'd dress up for once. Hey, listen, please do not try to button that jacket because I don't want me and Ernie to get our eye put out. <laughs> The legendary Tim Kiley, always a pleasure. Um, thanks for being with us, and uh, man, I'll see you in the studio. I will see you in the studio on uh, on Friday. Can't wait. I'll talk to you later. Back here on the Steam Room, wrapping things up with uh, episode number twenty-eight on the second most popular. Uh, podcast in the history of media, and it's presented by Tractor Supply Company. We go old school in this last segment. If you're new to this podcast, uh, let's go to Chuck's answering machine. You've reached Charles Barkley. Leave a message, America. Hey, Charles. Uh, also, hey, Ernie, and uh, shout out to the man, Tim Kiley, for holding it down. My name is Rusty Dagan. And I'm from Orlando, Florida, home of the NBA bubble. In this unprecedented time of physical distancing, my question for Charles is, when was a time during your career, teammate or not, where you felt, I have to physically get away from this guy, whether it was for hygiene purposes or you thought, man, this guy's going to kill me. Thank you, guys. Huge fan. Uh, have a nice day. <laughs> for hygiene purposes, who did you need to distance from? Cliff Robinson. <laughs> took we call him drive through cliff took the quickest showers in the history of civilization you know first of all he's a great dude and he never smelled to be honest with you but he took the quickest showers in the history of civilization before the meeting even got there this guy walked in the shower and walked out of the shower drive through cliff robinson <laughs> Drive through. That's classic. Next call. Hey guys, Loyal Seamer here. I really enjoyed your interview last night with Jonathan Majors from Lovecraft Country. I really loved the premiere episode, but I was kind of surprised at how scary it was. My question to both of you what is the scariest movie or TV show you've ever seen? Harry and Silas of the Lambs are probably two of the scarier movies I've seen. It was really nice to talk to Jonathan Majors. Yeah, I um, I'm more of a I was always a Hitchcock fan uh, growing up, so I always loved you know like Rear Window, real suspenseful stuff more than the horror stuff, but you know yeah. Psycho and Rear Window and the Birds and that kind of thing. I'll tell you a funny story about Psycho. Um, 
<laughs> that's which seems like a strange thing to say. So I'm a kid. And we're watching that the family is watching the original psycho. And my dad's mother is down from Vermont, my grandmother Inky, and she is she's getting up there in years at that point and was apt to nod off from time to time. So <laughs> she's here. Janet Lee gets in the shower, okay, at that Bates Motel. And you know the scene that's about to follow, and and uh, Inky nods off, uh, and then so this shower scene happens, and and then the next thing you know they're showing her eye, and they're and she's in the shower, and she's and and Inky comes too, and says, "Oh, do you suppose somebody put something in her food?" <laughs> I was like, I don't think so, Inky. I go back to sleep. <laughs> Next call. <laughs> hey, Charles Barkley. This is Cheryl Ann. And actually, this message is for Ernie. Because I know that Ernie has won a lot of Emmys and a lot of awards. But I have to say that I'm the one who won the prize 38 years ago when we got married. I could not love you more. I love you more every day. Happy anniversary, hon. Hey, thank you very much, Cheryl Ann. It'll be officially on Friday. We'll be 38 years. Wow, how sweet of Cheryl Ann to, to call. That was a wonderful present. Uh, first of all, you know Cheryl Ann is the sweetest lady in the world. But yeah. I got to say this, though, Ernie. Would you please tell our audience where you met Cheryl Ann at? Yeah, I met Cheryl Ann. I, I was anchoring the news in Macon, Georgia. 1979, and uh, and she was the teller at the drive-through window at the bank where I took my check. Hey, so America, you see what I'm dealing with? This guy goes to the bank trying to pick up women. That's the marvelous story. That wasn't the point. My point of going to the bank was to deposit my measly uh, news anchor check from WMAZ, and I just we just happened to connect through six inches of bulletproof glass. Yeah, when people go to the bank, they're not looking for women. That poor lady was there trying to do her job, and you're making a move on her in the bank in the drive-thru. No, look, all I can say, look, at that point, 23 years old, I mean, it was hard for me to go anywhere without being hit on, Chuck. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man, congratulations, 38 years. That's pretty special. And, and we appreciate all you folks uh, who call in, all you loyal steamers. Again, that makes Cheryl a loyal steamer now that she's called Chuck's answering machine. Yes, that Man. does. That was that's, a, I don't like using the word perfect, but that's a perfect way to finish up this edition of the Steam Room. Episode number 28 is in the books, and we appreciate everybody who was uh, taking the time to be part of it. Thanks to J.J. Reddick for hanging out. And, yes. Uh, we encourage you to go to his uh, to his uh, podcast as well, The Old Man and the Three. Uh, good stuff. Um, there are a lot of good pods out there. We just happen to have the best one. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on The Steam Room. Mm-hmm.